Let's pray. In Jesus' name. Our Father, we thank you for today. We give you praise. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your for bringing us together once again at your feet. Father, we pray that everything that we would speak about today, everything that you would cause me to say today, everything that your children will hear today will be directly from you in Jesus' name. It will be what they need. It will be what they need for this hour in Jesus' name. And all our lives, including myself, that is speaking, will not remain the same. Amen. Amen. Today we're continuing with our topic, spiritual warfare. Uh, we started about it probably three or four, <laughs> three or four Wednesdays ago. And uh, we started by establishing that there, there are kingdoms that exist and there is a war or there's a battle to be fought. So I remember that that, that day the theme of the, of the teaching was the dividing line. And we talked about how usually when some of us were younger, at least I give an example, when I was younger, particularly when I was in university at some point, um, there was a group that came, there was a dancing competition in the fellowships. And um, on the final day, or rather with the final group, what happened was there was a dividing line between the two groups that were dancing. And essentially the rule was that no matter what you do, you must not cross over to the other side. That if you cross over to the other side, that, that teammate is lost. Um, and I stood, or I took that example, and I used it as an illustration to help us to see that in Scripture there are two kingdoms that are clearly defined. The kingdom of God, also known as the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of the devil. And these two kingdoms are very distinctively separated. You cannot, they don't merge in any way. They don't um, mix because their objectives and their alliances and their goals are very different. So we establish the existence of these two kingdoms and we establish the fact that there is a battle to be fought. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the theme, the battleground. So essentially, this is a direct continuation from the last time that we took this topic because if you say that there are two opposing forces and you say that there is a war to be fought, then there has to be a location where that war is fought. There has to be a battleground because they are not going to fight in a void, right? There's a place that they would fight. There is something that they're fighting for, right? If not, there won't be any battle in the first place. But before we go on exploring that, we first have to realize some things. And um, the things that we have to realize 
have been divided into subheadings here. And the first subheading we have here is the fact that we have expressions, expressions of a kingdom. Before you can say a kingdom exists, right? That kingdom has to have some elements. What makes up a kingdom? And for a kingdom to exist, there are two primary elements that the kingdom will have. The first is that the kingdom will have what a person or persons. The second is that the kingdom would have territory. They would have a domain where they exercise rulership. If these two things do not exist, there can be no kingdom. But even with this, we have to understand that of these two elements, the second one is always and dependent on the first. What I mean by that is the state of the territory or the place is usually influenced by the personality, the allegiances, the composition, the goals, the dreams, the aspirations of the person. Essentially what I'm saying is this, Nigeria being Nigeria today is a territory, right? The things that are going on in Nigeria today are a direct expression, whether people agree or not, of what exists in the people that are in control of this territory, right? Because that's where policies that's where rules come from. That's where regulations come from. So you would find that in different countries, a lot of times when there is governmental change, there will be policy change. Things will change in the operation, in the nature of the way that things go on in that particular territory. Because the persons that have control over that territory have also changed. So. The territory really has no influence or power of its own that it does not derive directly from the persons that are in control of that territory. And all those things that we've said now are extremely important because when we boil it down and we look at what we've looked at in our introductory text, when we looked at the book of Ephesians, and we look at how scripture says we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. Let's open it. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. It says, from verse 12, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I want you to take note of rulers of darkness of this world. Rulers, making you understand that there is a domain of rulership, right? Spiritual wickedness in high places. High places is the description of a location, meaning that this kingdom does not exist in a void, right? 
Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelations, chapter 4. Revelations 4, I'll read from verse 2. It says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had their heads, they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightning and thundering and voicing. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast like the face of a man, and the fourth beast like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him, are sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. Amen. What we just read was the description of a place right? But in that place, from verse 2, he says what? Immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne was set in heaven. We are given the name of the place. And on and one sat on that throne. Sat on his throne. Why are we talking about the expressions of a kingdom? Because we're going to talk about us for a bit. Because we have to understand humanity also by the expressions of a kingdom. Genesis 2, verse 8. The Bible says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have over the fish of the and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God created he him, male and female, said unto them, Breathe fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Amen. So in the case of man as well, a kingdom was created, right? And 
a person was placed in that kingdom. You know, there's a very interesting question that people used to ask a while back. I think when I was in uni, some people asked this question. It's a very interesting question that has a very simple answer in my opinion, but it used to cause a lot of arguments back then. And the question is this. If God was not in heaven, will you still want to go there? And you'll be surprised at the answers you will get. But my answer is very simple. No. For one reason. If God was not in heaven, heaven will not be heaven. Heaven being what it is, is a function of the fact that God is there. God is the principal factor that makes heaven what it is. If you take God, and I mean three of them, because they are one. If you take them out of the equation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, hypothetically speaking, obviously, because it can't happen. But if he is not there, that place loses what it is. He's the brightness that shines there. Because they don't have a sun or a moon. <laughs> the source of everything that makes heaven what it is, is God himself. Is his presence there. If God was not in heaven, I wouldn't want to go there. Just take me to wherever he is. Because wherever he is, will become heaven. Because that's what makes heaven, heaven. Because the kingdom is always influenced who is in control. Always. It's who is in control that determines what it is. And it used to be a very interesting question. There used to be a lot of arguments. And I liked it back then because it will really show you. And if you really understand it, it will change the way you read your Bible. Because it will show you that a lot of people have separated making heaven from being with God or being with Jesus. Some people just want to make heaven, irrespective of what shape or form that heaven takes. Somehow they've separated the presence or the existence of a Jesus. For some people, it's not, I'm going back to be my Lord. I'm going to finally be with him. I'm going to finally be with my God. For some people, it's, oh, I want to make heaven. This place where we'll rest and there will be peace. It's true that heaven promises all those things. But the only reason why heaven can provide these things is because of the presence of God in heaven. Because God is our rest. He is our inheritance. The reason we are saying this will take us back to the second part of this manual. And the second part is titled, The Fall of a Kingdom. I'm not going to open Genesis chapter 3. You can read it at home again. But when we understand this thing about the kingdom, about the expression of the nature of the kingdom, then we would, we would understand in a deeper context 
exactly what happened in the garden. You see, the thing is, God created the earth. But it was never his plan to control it. He owns it. And we're going to read Psalm 24 very soon. Psalm 24 starts with what? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It has not stopped belonging to God. But ownership of the earth is different from control of the earth. The earth was created and designated for man to control. But it has always been God's plan that because man would have him, that's God, inside him, God essentially would control the earth through man. So remember, that means the kingdom is under the jurisdiction of God. But the reason why the kingdom is under the jurisdiction of God is because the person that God has created to be in charge of that kingdom is also under the jurisdiction of God because God is inside him. So, when we say that the devil is the God of this world, we have to break it down and understand exactly what we are saying. The devil is the God of this world for one primary purpose alone. It's because the natural man, after the fall, lost the ability to be aligned with God. So the only control that the devil has over this world is men. It's us. That's how he does it. Because once man is under his control, the earth automatically also will be under his control. So when corruption came into man, when corruption became the mainstay of humanity, corruption also became the mainstay of the world. The earth had to become corrupt because man had lost God's presence. And we've said before, just now, that the person determines what the territory is like. So you cannot expect that the world will be allowed to God, I mean the planet, the earth, when the people are not. And these are some of the things that you would find in scripture. And it is from this standpoint that we can understand spiritual warfare. Because God had a plan to bring everything back to himself. Starting from the people. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 60. There are times when we tend to, we know Isaiah 60, at least we know the first verse. Because the first verse is extremely popular. But we need to read it down, probably read the whole chapter. Get proper context of what this verse is saying. It's a, prophet, it's a prophetic verse speaking of the future, the chapter. I'm sure they love it in Isaiah anyway. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 4. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. And cross the people. 
Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they themselves, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from afar, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Who are we talking about here? Who is this brightness that we're talking about? It's Christ. It's Christ that all the nations will be gathered to. It's Christ that the Gentiles will come to his light, and the kings will come to the brightness of his rising. It's Christ that the nations will gather together, and they will come to him. It's Christ whose sons will come from afar, and will be nursed at his side. Because Christ said, even in the book of John, when he was talking about his sheep, he said that he has some sheep that are not yet part of the flock. This is in John 10. And he says he also has to go and bring to him. What's Christ saying here? What's this saying? It's saying that when the earth is covered in darkness and gross darkness has covered the people, which is the time that we are living in today, that there will be one light that the sons of men will be drawn to. And that light is the gospel of Christ. Because Christ is the only brightness that we have in the world today. But where I'm focusing on here really is the fact that where does darkness come from? The darkness of verse 2. Hmm? Where did he come from? The darkness is simply a byproduct of the fact that man has lost God's spirit. That's the only way that gross darkness can cover the world and its people. That is the rise of corruption in man. It's what we've had since the fall of man. And when we read this verse and we see, some people read, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of God is risen upon thee. And some people interpret this verse as a verse encouraging you to, you know, like, be so. You know, like success. Like arise, shine. Like let your light shine. What light are we talking about? It's Christ in you. Because this is talking about the future glory of Zion, God's people. And how when the world is stuck in darkness and in a rot, there will be the rise of some people who will shine as light when darkness has covered the world. Because like we said, the territory is a product of the people, the people in control. Let's read Psalm 4. Very short Psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who had not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory 
shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is a psalm that speaks about the victory that Jesus will purchase for us. It's a prophetic psalm speaking about the future. But this is David basically connecting the victory that God will give us through Jesus to the fact that everything on earth belongs to God. Essentially what he is saying is that Everything belongs to God. God created everything. God is the owner of all things. But the only person that would receive from the Lord is he that what? Has clean hands and a pure heart. The only person that can have access to all the things that God has created through God is someone who has clean hands and a pure heart. And how would you get these clean hands and a pure heart? And it pivots into what Jesus is going to come and do. The victory that Jesus will have over the devil and his kingdom. Meaning that anybody who is aligning himself or herself with the Lord, by ascending to the heel of the Lord, will be able to have possession of what the Lord has created, which is what? The earth. Why are we reading all these verses? What's its connection with spiritual warfare? It's quite simple. The most precious commodity on the planet is human beings. And the battlefield of spiritual warfare is our souls, the soul of man. That's where the battle is fought. The battle is fought in the soul. And the battle is also fought for the soul. Because whoever gets the allegiance of man's soul between God and the devil is who will eventually control man. And that would control what influence man has on his immediate territory. The Bible says, it says, if my people that are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, that he would hear their cry and what? Forgive their sins and one more thing, he will heal their land. Do you know how I interpret that scripture? How I interpret the scripture is very, very simple and it might be weird. But that's essentially what God is saying. How I interpret the scripture is this. The more people exist that are called by his name, the more of them exist and the more of them who will lift up their voice to pray, the more the land will be healed. Essentially, here's what I'm saying. If the people that are called by his name in Nigeria are 1,000 and those 1,000 people pray 
and you compare that with the people called by his name in Nigeria being 200,000, and those 200,000 people are praying to him for the same thing, the healing of the land for that 1,000, and the healing of the land for that 200,000. Because essentially, the alignment of people to God in a particular locale change things. Can change things. God can have mercy. But God wants all men to come unto him. It's always been his desire. It's always been what he wants. So the battlefield is in your mind. It's in your heart. It's in your will. It's in your emotions. It's inside man. And that's what affects territory. So, the less Christians there are in a place, the less churches will exist. Do we know? Naturally. Let's open the Bibles to Second Corinthians. And this is where we'll close today. Second Corinthians ten. I want to read from verse 3. I'll read from verse 1 to 5 for context. It says, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence is among you, being absent and bold towards you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present without confidence. Where we I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Essentially, Paul was speaking to this church and he was speaking to them about the authority that he exerts over them. Because essentially, the people that he was writing to had this impression that when he's away from them and he's writing letters to them, his letters are extremely what? They are bold and weighty. But when they meet the man, they see him as what? A meek man. A man whose speech, in quotes, sort of doesn't match the person they are looking at. Because he was a pretty small man. And many people were looking at him with that stature, with the fact that, oh, he is a small man. And that's why he said that they were treating him like what? Like people who are in the flesh. They were looking at his authority as something that had something that had anything to do with his physical attributes. 
is the, he, him being an orator or him being able to make a compelling argument or him being able to speak verbosely. And he's saying that that's not it. Because he said, though we walk in the flesh, we are in this present body. We do not war in the flesh. But he says we war in the spirit to the pulling down of strongholds. And what did he call these strongholds? Number one, he said casting down imaginations. Other versions will call imaginations arguments. And he says every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. There are versions that will say every pretensions, pretensions knowledge or false knowledge, false religion that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of the true God. Number three, it says what? Bringing into captivity every thought to what? To the obedience of Christ. That everybody, everybody's thoughts. So he's saying that this is the battle he is fighting. And that battle that he is fighting is not a fleshy one. It's not one you fight by um, oratory skills. It's not one you fight by any physical attributes. Because what he's trying to do, he's not trying to win an argument. He's not simply trying to you know, give a beautiful speech. He's trying to do something within the heart of man to align men unto God, casting down every pretentious knowledge, every high thought, every false religion that sets itself against the knowledge of the true God, bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. This is the battle. That's the battleground. Think of every prayer that you are going to pray in this life. In the end, when it comes to going to war against the devil in any aspect of your life, you're going to deal with this. So if it's on a personal level, and you are being delivered from something on a personal level, you're going to be casting out all imaginations. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, you're going to be worrying against. For example, if someone is worrying against sickness, what does the knowledge of God tell you? That Christ has what? Healed you of what? Sickness and disease over 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And the work is already finished, right? That's the knowledge of God, the standard of God. And yet you see sickness in your body. So when you are going to God in prayer, what are you doing? You're standing on the word of God to combat anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So that sickness that you are feeling in your body that is trying to exalt 
itself over the knowledge of God that you have already that you are healed. You're taking that to God and standing on it, and that's what we call faith, right? And when you stand on that word, you receive your healing. What did you just do? You just won something. What is the root cause of most of the physical wars that are going on in the world against Christians? It's simple. Every high thing, every knowledge that is exalting itself above the knowledge of Christ, that's, that's the battle being fought. Because nobody about your Jesus. So they are trying to exalt their science over your Jesus. Their false and pretentious high knowledge in quote over what the knowledge of Christ. And that's the spiritual battle being fought. So when we see things happening in the in this world, when we see that it almost feels like the world is structuring itself against the propagation of the, the gospel. It's structuring itself against the traveling of ministers. It's structuring itself. So if you go to the embassy now and you say you're a missionary, they won't give you a passport. You they won't give you a visa rather. You won't be allowed to travel. When we see that it seems like the world is setting itself up to actively negate the gospel. It's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. The battle is being fought against these things. And Christians have to realize that in every area of our lives, whether on a personal level, whether it's about somebody else that you are believing God for, you are believing God for somebody else's salvation, or you are believing God for something on a grand scale when it comes to the will of God in this land, or you are believing God in terms of missionary endeavors, what you're set up against is knowledge that has exalted itself over the knowledge of God, of the one true God. What you're set up against is imaginations that people have had and have started to worship. What you're set up against is thoughts that refuse to be under the captivity of the obedience of Christ. That's what you're set up against. It just manifests itself in different ways. So the battleground of spiritual warfare is in the heart of man. Because like we said, the person controls the territory. So in a country where the rulers do not have any regard for the one true God, of course their policies will also have no regard for the one true God. But there is no neutrality like we talked about the last time we spoke about. You're either on one side of the line or the other side of the line. What does that mean? Any human being, any leader who does not actively want to promote the gospel is against it. Both on a personal and on a global. Any human that is not actively working towards the propagation of the gospel, any human being that is not actively working towards exalting the knowledge of God, bringing thoughts under the obedience of Jesus Christ, and casting down every false imaginations and arguments against Christ, anybody that is not on that side is on the other side. 
There's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground. It's only a question of whether you know that you are there or not. And it's on because Christians do not know that there's, a, there's an active war going on every day they wake up and sleep. And because they don't know that, what are they doing? They are on the wrong side of the battle. They don't know. Every statement of neutrality that you make in your office, every statement of neutrality or um, every gesture, disposition of it, let's all just be together like some might do. Every form of, oh yeah, we're all the same. Yeah, but like, your truth, sure, like, I respect your truth, but I'm a Christian. I, I, but it's your truth. I respect what you're saying because, you know, you're speaking your truth. Every such compromise is you, even if you've identified with Christ, you're not fighting for his side. You're fighting for the other side. You're a traitor. That's what you are. You might not know it, but it's what you are. Because the battlefield, the battleground, is the soul of man. And the prize is also the soul of man. That's why the scripture tells us that heaven rejoices when one soul comes back to God, we can't, we don't know the price of it. And that's what we are worrying for. Every other thing, every other thing is under it. Some might have thought that when we're talking about spiritual warfare, we want to talk about the person that is disturbing you in your village or how, or how obstacles can leave your way so that you can make it in life. That's not it. God doesn't care about those things. Those things are natural blessings that once you understand your right in Jesus, once you understand where you stand in Jesus, once you know and you are living the life that God wants you to live, he says all other things added unto you. The devil will try here and there and you would pray and stand on your authority and victory is certainly yours. But you see, that blood that was shed on the cross. The battle to make sure that that sacrifice, because God wants as many as possible to come unto him, because God has provided and given the opportunity for all men to return to him. And the devil would do everything, like we said in the last class, to oppose what the kingdom of God is focused on. If the kingdom of God is focused on getting all souls to God, and the devil is opposed to getting all souls to God. What that means is that as a representative and an, as an ambassador of that kingdom, the devil is opposed to you doing your part in getting all souls to God. The devil is not really opposed to you making money. He is only opposed to you making money if he knows that you, you have decided that if you make money, because money is a part of God's blessings to you. You would spend and invest that money in making sure that souls come to God. That's the kind of money the devil is opposed to. The devil would even keep you comfortable if he knows 
that it will distract you from casting down imaginations, from taking down every knowledge that exalts against the knowledge of God. He will keep you comfortable so that your Christian life is defined by other standards and other principles. So your Christian life is defined by how blessed you are, how good your job is. Because he knows if he keeps you comfortable and ignorant, you will not even realize that you're fighting a battle. Amen. This is where we're going to close today. As we continue in this topic, we would find out that there are many weapons that God has given us to fight this battle. Like Paul has said, it's not a physical battle. It's not one you fight by your power. So many weapons he has given us. We're going to look at the armor of God. We're going to look at prayer. We're going to look at thanksgiving. We're going to look at the blood of Jesus. We're going to look at the word of our testimony. We underestimate testimony and what testimony really means. I'm not talking about what you come and do on Sunday. I'm not talking about testimony time in church. Your testimony can be given anywhere at any time. And a true testimony is powerful. I don't know. I didn't have money. Somebody came to my house. I had no. The word of a true testimony of the power and the the anointing of God in your life and what the blood of Jesus has done for you has power, it carries power because we read clearly in the word that we overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony that testimony means something and those are some of the things that we would look through and go through as we continue in this topic let's rise up there's a hymn that says, um, Christians seek not yet repose. Um, the thing is, the Christian that the devil likes the most. In short, the devil's, the devil has like two layers of problems. And let me explain what that means. The devil doesn't want people to come to God. But if a Christian gives his life to Christ, that does not mean that the devil's time with him is done. When you give your life to Christ, the devil might have lost that battle. But there's still another battle that he wants to win. And that battle is a battle of ignorance. Amen? So, anybody who has, yes, given his life to Jesus, but the devil can manage to keep ignorant... The devil has still won. And the problem is most Christians have no concept of the fact that there's a battle going on. It's a cosmic battle. It's on a cosmic scale. And it's been going on before they entered this world. And it's a battle that is going to continue to the end of time. And Jesus said in his parable that when the wheat and the tares, when they were growing together, and the servant wanted to weed off the tars. Jesus said that the master said, leave them. Let them grow together until the day of the harvest. Because if you take away the tars, you might cut away some wheat in the process. 
So leave them to grow together. And when we get to the day of the harvest, then we would harvest all and separate the tars from the wheat. That's one of the parables about what? The kingdom of God. Making us understand that there is a cosmic battle going on and they are wheat and they are tars. And essentially, the only reason, the primary reason why we are still here is God wants as many as possible to become wheat. And that's what the war is. And it's fought in the soul of man. Amen. We'll meet back here on Friday. And uh, Sunday is worship night. And we'll meet back here on Sunday as well. In Jesus' name. Amen.